There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Our Holy Father, it is good to be still and quiet this morning in your presence. We thank you that you are a sovereign God who rules over the nations of the world, who rules over every dimension of this planet, and whose providence, you said, extends to the very number of hairs on our head that a sparrow cannot even fall to the ground and escape your notice. We are reminded, Father, of the evil in our world, these two shootings this weekend, five dead. It seems, Father, like it's becoming a regular event in America. We think of the fallenness of the creation and the storms that are before us, but we thank you that you are sovereign and that you told us that calamity in this life comes indiscriminately on believers and unbelievers alike, but it is a reminder to all to repent that we might escape the coming judgment. We pray and intercede for those who have lost loved ones this weekend, those who have seen great injury come on other family members. We thank you for the police and those who are being dumped on so often in our day and ridiculed and mocked, and yet your word says that they are your ministers and servants. Thank you that they are willing to stand in a uniform as a deterrent against evil. Bless the many police officers in this church. Help us this morning, Holy Father, as we read your word to examine our own hearts, whether it is a repentance unto salvation or whether we need to repent as believers, a godly sorrow that would produce obedience. Have your sway and way over us in every dimension of life. Thank you that you did not leave us here as orphans, but you sent us just as you promised our helper, the Spirit. Thank you that as we yield ourselves to him, that he will enable us to live a godly life and this morning to understand the word that he inspired. Father, we know we are in a challenging portion of Scripture, and I know there are many new believers. You have something for them and something for older Christians, but help us all to look to you in humility and dependence, like Samuel who said, Speak, O Lord. We ask you to speak to our hearts, to illumine the truth that is here, that we might understand it and apply it. Help me, Father, to take the things that I've prepared and fill me and anoint me and use me. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you? Revelation chapter 20. You can see the title of this morning's sermon is The Final Rebellion. 
Now, by now, most of you know that the next great event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church has been caught up and removed, the Bible teaches that there will be an unprecedented time of turmoil on the earth. In fact, it will be such a gruesome period, a period of time that we studied in chapters 6 through 18, that the people who are alive during this time frame will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It is so terrible, so frightening, that you think one might be exaggerating, but Jesus himself said, for then there will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. If you take all of the natural disasters, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, all of the persecutions of this world, if you take all of the famines, if you take all of the holocausts and all of the atrocities and evils that men have done and put it all together, it wouldn't even begin to compare to the time that is still out in the future. The angel Michael, the archangel, said to Daniel the prophet, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Jesus said it will be so terrible that unless those days had been cut short, no human could have survived it. Now, we know that there is going to be an event that will change all of this. The great tribulation will bring about the return of the Messiah to the earth in the second coming. That's Revelation chapter 19. This morning we are in the 20th chapter. We've already spent a few weeks in it. Today we want to focus just on verses 7 through 10. A difficult, challenging, meaty passage of Scripture, but if we will listen and stay alert, God has something for us. To give us a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 1, so follow along if you would in your Bibles. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, as we consider this final rebellion that God prophesies here in verses 7 through 10, there are three truths that are unfolded. If you're using your note-taking outline, first, I want us to ponder from verse 7, Satan and his freedom. I want us to think for just a moment about Satan and the freedom that he is going to be given. Look, if you will, now at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So we know both contextually and chronologically where we are in God's prophetic calendar. John says when the thousand years are completed. In other words, this event happens after Jesus comes to the earth, rules and reigns for a thousand years. During that thousand years, the devil has been locked up. And now at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says the devil is released. If you remember, we learned in verse 3 that God's angel threw him, that is Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So Satan has been locked away in the abyss. But here in verse 7, his prison, which is, again, another description of the abyss, it's a place where today there is a certain category of fallen demons that are present. They're going to be released during the tribulation and then put back in the abyss. And at this time, for a thousand years, Satan will be in the abyss, and Christ will be ruling and reigning. And God will keep him there until he has accomplished the purposes that he has for the millennium. The last time I was on our Graniteville campus, one of the couples, we had a Q&A time. They said, well, Pastor Carl, I'm not sure why we even need a millennium. Why should not Jesus just come back, carry us to heaven at the end of the tribulation, and just be done with it all? And I said, that is a superb question. And it was already getting late. And I said, but it's an armchair question, but when we come to Revelation chapter 20, I'll answer it. So here I am a year later, all right? Follow along. I want us to see six reasons for the millennium, six reasons that God gives for the millennial kingdom. Number one, the purpose of this millennium, this kingdom, is to prove His kingdom promises to the people of Israel. God is a promise-keeping God, and every promise that He makes, He will indeed keep. Now, of course, the fact that Messiah will reign on the earth is embedded throughout the Old Testament. The only thing that is new under the new covenant is the length of time, a thousand years. But the prophets repeatedly speak of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. For instance, it was promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7, concerning the land, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Now, if you know Israel's history, since the time they entered the promised land, they have been under affliction. And even now that these last days God has brought them back into the land, the nations still oppose them. This has never, ever been fulfilled, but it is going to be fulfilled. But then God made a promise about the Messiah's throne. Listen, 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are complete, speaking to King David, and you lie down, you die with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you, 
who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now, there are repeated dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that confirm this truth, that someone from the tribe of Judah, the family of David, we call him the Christ, the Messiah in Hebrew, will come and rule and reign upon the earth. In fact, when he stepped out of heaven and showed up on his birthday in Bethlehem, the angel Gabriel said this to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. That's never happened, but it is going to happen. Israel will be in the land. The boundaries that God promised Abraham will be fulfilled. They've never had all the land that God promised them and God will rule. So that's the first purpose. God is going to keep his promises to the people of Israel. Let me give you a second purpose for the reign of Jesus on the earth. God will prove his initial intention for man. God gives us a snapshot during the millennial reign of what he had really had for Adam and Eve had they not rebelled against God. In the opening chapter in Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It was God's intention for Adam and by extension, you and I, to rule. We don't rule. Adam doesn't rule. You can't dump it on Adam because when Adam sinned, Romans 5, 12 says we all sinned. We were in and with Adam. We rebelled there in the garden with him. And so he abdicated the opportunity to rule, and this is Satan's world, so to speak. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But God is going to allow the Messiah to rule, and we'll see in a moment, we will rule with him. Also, during the time of the millennial reign of Christ, the Messiah will rule and lifespans will be greatly extended. Listen to Isaiah 65 and verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who, do, who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, the youth at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In short, one of the sources of sorrow and weeping today is death. But during the millennial reign of Christ, God is going to change the nature of death. It will be different. People will die, but they will live far longer, much like during the days of Noah. Even the biology and the ecology of the world will change, and we'll see in a moment who will die and why they will die during this period of time. But if you see a 100-year-old man walking around in that day, you could say, hey, young man, and you won't be joking. I was joking recently. There was an elderly woman. Her daughter was there. They were obviously a mirror image in the face, and I said, now, who's this young lady with you? And that younger lady, she laughed and she said, uh, I said, how old are you? She said, I'm 83. And then her daughter says, she's not 83, she's 92. I said, okay. <laughs> but during this time, if you're 100 and you die, you'll be dying in your youth. And then the next verse says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
There's going to be perfect justice upon the earth. Never again will a man be robbed of the fruits of his labor. That's what God initially intended. Now, we read that in America, and it doesn't mean all that much to us, but in many parts of the world, their eyes brighten when they read a promise like that because no one will come into their vineyard or into their fields and steal their crops. They will enjoy the pleasure of what they've planted. And God actually says, and by, by the way, though, it's beginning to change in America, isn't it? When I was a boy, the only time we locked our house is when we went on vacation. We never locked our cars. But that all changed when we got into high school because the fabric of America was beginning to change. And we are seeing Romans 1 lived out. People say, oh, what's... What's the solution to all these solutions, to all these shootings that are happening in America? The evil we are seeing is Romans chapter 1. When a nation forsakes God, God gives them over to a depraved mind, an upside down mind where men call evil good and good evil. And when you read the list in the latter part of Romans 1, it's chilling. It's what we are seeing lived out in our day. The problem that we are seeking to fix is not a psychological problem. They'll say, well, this is mental illness. It has nothing to do with mental illness. It is a moral problem. It is a spiritual problem. That's not to say there couldn't be a mentally ill person. But overall, this is a moral issue according to God in the book of Romans. During this period of time, God will also change the environment. The world itself will be different. Isaiah speaks of the fact that the desert will blossom like a rose. Occasionally, I'll be in Israel, and some tour guide will say, this prophecy is being fulfilled. Look, the desert there, it's blossoming like a rose. Yeah, they got this little section, three miles square, that they've irrigated, and that's not what the Scripture is speaking about. It's speaking about all of Israel being green and fruitful, and it's going to happen during the millennium. In fact, even the animal world will be different. Isaiah eleven six says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. A few verses later, a baby will play over the hole of a snake, over the nest of a serpent. An infant will put his, put his hand. They will no longer injure or destroy in my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea. People ask me all the time, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is such a God of love, why is there so much evil? And the answer is because of sin. This was never God's original plan. But he made man with a free will, and we chose to rebel against God. But during the millennium, God will give us a glimpse before we step into eternity what, it, what he had originally intended. Third, our third purpose there from the millennium is not only to fulfill his promises to Israel, and to prove his promises for man, what he intended, but also to prove his promises to the church. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians of their future, and by application, our future, when someday in some way we as Christians will help judge the world. He asked, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In Romans, the fifth chapter, he says, those who receive the abundance of grace 
and of the gift of righteousness, born-again people, they will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So sprinkled all the way through the Gospels and through the epistles are these promises that when Jesus rules and reigns, so will His people. And so God promised the church in Revelation chapter 2, and then He applies it to all the churches when He says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. You see the change there in typeset? That tells you it's an Old Testament quote. He's quoting Psalm 2, and he goes on to quote it further. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Psalm 2, one of the most important psalms in the whole Psalter. And if you know it, you know it is a promise that God the Son made, that God the Father made to God the Son, that His Son is going to rule, that He will give Jesus the nations as an inheritance. But here, Jesus, when He speaks to this particular church and to all the churches, He applies it not just to Himself, but to us. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Christ in Revelation 3.21 again promises this co-regency. He who overcomes, and every true believer will overcome. You're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by perseverance. When Jesus said the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, he is giving a mark of genuine conversion. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but if you've been made a new creature in Christ, you will persevere. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere, you will overcome. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. It's all a part of the coming kingdom. In Revelation 5, verse 10, you have made them, speaking of the church, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then in this chapter, in verse 4, the Scripture promises that we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So what's the purpose of the millennium? One, first and foremost, to keep His promises to Israel. Number two, to prove what God originally had intended for man, had we not sinned. Number three, and that vindicates His goodness. Number three, to prove the promises that He made to the church. But number four, to prove the promises that He made to His Son. The Father has appointed the Son to reign and to rule and to give the the nations of this world as His inheritance. Satan, if you remember, because of man's rebellion, became the God of this world. And so when Satan said there in the temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, that was a legitimate offer because Satan had the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would not yield to that temptation. He saw that Satan's offer was nothing but sawdust and sand. And so God promised that he would give his son the nations of the world as he came to fulfill the purposes. And so we read in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Listen, we live in a day where the name of Jesus is mocked. People use it in vain. They make fun of Christian values. 
But a day is coming when God will give the honor to Jesus that he deserves for this reason also, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, the name which is above every name, the text says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." Notice in addition, a fifth reason, God will prove through the millennium the answer to the prayers he has asked us to pray. Ever since the time of Abram, later named Abraham, God promised the kingdom. And Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most people pray that today and they have no idea what they're even praying. But as you read the church fathers and you read the New Testament, they understood precisely what that meant, that there will come a day when on earth, when Messiah rules and reigns, God's will will be done as it's being done this morning in heaven. And so during this thousand years, the devil has been locked up. Jesus is ruling and reigning. God has a purpose for the millennium. There are many more purposes, but those are some of the key. So Satan at the end of the thousand years is loose. That's Satan and his freedom. Second, there in your outline, let's think for a moment about Satan and his forces. Satan and his forces. We read now in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So after being bound in the abyss, the bottomless pit for a thousand years, Satan is turned loose. He is is given freedom from the prison to wreak havoc. One famous theologian now dead and in heaven, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, was asked the question, Dr. Schaeffer, why on earth would God ever let Satan out of the abyss after he had locked him there for a thousand years? And his response was, if you can tell me why he was released the first time, I can tell you why he will be released the second time. But listen, God knows the answer, and it's part of God's plan. I have the word must circled in verse 3 here in my Bible. It says, he must, he must, he must be released. That brings me to the sixth reason as to why God has a millennial reign, and it is to prove the depravity of man's nature. The reign of the Messiah is going to show just how fallen and depraved man really is. Now, here's the devil. Certainly, he is incorrigible. He is unrepentant. He is stubborn as can be, but he is locked up for a thousand years. And yet at the end of the thousand years, knowing that his end is short, he still is trying to push evil. And when he does so, he is going to really demonstrate how fallen and depraved we really are. You know, we sing that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Some people say, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm certainly not a wretch. But the more you grow in Christ, and the more you see what God is like, the more you are able to embrace the truth of that hymn, because it reflects Scripture. 
when Paul wants us to see what we are really like, what we have the capacity to do, he strings together in Romans 3 some Old Testament quotes, and he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Satan will have zero ability, along with all of his demons, who are also likewise in the abyss, zero ability to tempt or to pride anyone towards evil. But when that thousand years is over and he is released, we will see the feigned obedience of many who had submitted to Jesus as Lord, but had never truly embraced Him and been converted by Him. We will see the truth of Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I was doing the funeral, as far as I know, of a known unbeliever. I mean, when I would plead with him to receive Jesus, he would laugh at me. But then when the family needed a preacher, they called me. And one person there said, but he had such a good heart. And God would say, no, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so Satan will be released from his prison at the command of a sovereign God who rules and reigns on earth and above, in heaven above. The abyss will be opened. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Revelation 1 and verse 18, we studied it in the second message I think I did, or maybe the third, that the Lord Jesus has the keys of death and of Hades. So Satan is not the ruler of the abyss. God puts him in there, uses one of his angels. God allows him to be released. Neither is Satan the king of Hades. Today, if a man dies, he goes to Hades. He doesn't go to the lake of fire. He goes today to Hades, which is a place of torment. It's an awful place. But Satan doesn't rule there. Christ has the keys to Hades. In death in Hades, when we come next time to the next paragraph, is thrown into the lake of fire, and neither is Satan the ruler there. He's not the king of hell. He's not the king of Gehenna. Gehenna, hell, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan has never been there. Some people think, well, Satan is down there in hell, and, you know, he's got this pitchfork and these cloven hoofs and his horns coming out of his head and his forked tail, and he's, he's poking around and tormenting people. No, he is not tormenting anyone. He's never even been to hell yet. And when he gets there, he won't be in charge of it. He will be God's chief prisoner there. Adonai, the Lord God, He is the King of hell. He rules in heaven above, and Satan will be his prisoner along with all of his demons. Now, with that said, we read here in verse 8 that Satan will come out to deceive the nations, and that forces us to ask two critical questions. First, precisely who is it that the devil is deceiving? And secondly, why would anyone choose to yield to his deception? Well, let me first put you at ease by saying it won't be you if you are here today and you're born again. 
It won't be you, I can promise you. And even if you're not born again, it won't be you because you will never enter the millennial kingdom. Now, think your way through this. This is not fluff and stuff. This is not padlum this morning. This is the meat of the Word. And if you're ever going to grow up, we need to study the Scriptures. There's so much foolish, fluffy preaching in our day that people don't know anything, and that's why they're so deceived in our day. So who is it? And why would someone respond? Well, let me give you a chart first. It's called amillennialism. Amillennialism, we spoke earlier, was largely uh, introduced in a, in a wide way through Augustine, and it was the seeds of Augustine who planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism popularized amillennialism. Millennial, of course, is the, from the Latin word. It means a thousand and so we speak of the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Ah, the alpha means there is no millennium. And so today, there is a lot of people who think there's no future for the Jewish folks, and they are amillennialists. And if you were to take their theology and put it in a schematic, it might look like this. They would say the church is the new Israel. Because of Israel's disobedience, the church has replaced Israel, and that led to the anti-Semitism of all the popes. It led to the gross anti-Semitic statements of Calvin and Luther, and even people in our own day. They say the church is the new Israel. We have replaced Israel, and so replacement theology. And so they would say, well, Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Well, He is. There's nothing that happens apart from God's sovereign omnipotent power, but that does not dismiss that He will literally rule and reign, as the Old Testament prophets said, upon the earth, and as Jesus affirmed, and as the Revelation teaches. So they think, well, we're in the church age, so to speak, we're the new Israel. When it ends, we don't know, but suddenly Jesus will come back, the second coming. He'll just take us to heaven. The only thing they see is future is uh, the church and all believers being removed from the earth. They think there's one big judgment where all the lost and all the saved are brought together before God, and God then separates the believers from the unbelievers. The unbelievers are cast into hell. The believers are brought into heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the picture that God gives. But if you have a certain Calvinistic theology where it's not Israel who's being chosen in Romans 9, but people, then you have to be consistent, and you cannot plainly, grammatically interpret the book of Revelation. So for the amillennialists, the whole book of Revelation is history with the exception of the second coming and where God's people are brought into heaven and the lost are brought into hell. Now understand, the Protestant reformers, many of them, were saved out of Catholicism. And they certainly put a different spin on some of the Roman Catholic doctrines, and rightly so. They said, well, baptism doesn't save you, it doesn't wash away sin, but it is a covenant. And so they continued with infant baptism. Uh, they said that the church is not the new Israel, that is this organized church we call Roman Catholics that was filled with unbelievers in their day, and many wicked popes who said the worst, most hateful things against the Jews. I've quoted many of them earlier in this series for you. No, it's those who are born again 
who are God's people today. And so in their doctrine of last things, God's done with the Jew, it's all about the church, and they just put different spins on different things. And so they uh, just see one big judgment. That's not what God's Word says. Read it. There are four judgments in the future. Think your way through this this morning. There are four judgments that are still out in the future. The next one is through the catching up of the church, and it's what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, after that door in heaven is open, the church is caught up and brought in, we are going to be evaluated. He says, for we, he includes himself in this, Paul, a born-again believer, an apostle, for we must all appear before the judgment of the seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you've been through the discovery class, and that is a great discipleship course, we go through this in tremendous detail, and we look at the implications of this judgment. This is a judgment the Bible teaches takes place in heaven. It's not to determine if you go to heaven. That is determined before you take your last breath and your heart stops beating. What you decide about Jesus today will determine where you will go to heaven or hell when you die. But this is a judgment in heaven for believers in heaven to see how they will be rewarded throughout eternity and also during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Paul describes this judgment in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church is not built on the pope. When Peter says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, he's not referring to Peter. You can build that from the Latin translation. You are Peter, a stone, and upon this bedrock, referring to himself, I'll build my church. The foundation is Christ. And he says, now if any man builds on the foundation, which is gold, silver, and precious stones, those are three very beautiful, costly things. But then he gives another category, wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed or tested with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That is, whether it is of the quality of wood, hay, and straw, or the quality of gold, silver, and precious stones. If any man's work which he has built upon it, the foundation remains, that is, if it can withstand fire, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So if you've been through the discovery class, they walk through some examples of those things that God would call good, gold, silver, and precious stone kind of works versus futile and selfish works that would consider and constitute wood, hay, and straw. And at the judgment, when God tests our works as saved people with fire, some will be saved, yet so is through fire. That is, they will lose their reward, though they will certainly inherit heaven. And so the first judgment that is still in the future is the judgment for believers. There's a second judgment, and it's a judgment for Jewish people. At the end of the seven years, there will be Jewish people who have made it through the tribulation, who have survived the tribulation, just like there will be Gentile people who will make it through the tribulation. Not everyone will die. The vast majority of the world will die during this time, but not everyone. So Jesus will gather all the Jews, and so there's the judgment of Jewish survivors. And so in Ezekiel chapter 20, he speaks about the house of Israel, all the Jewish people. 
and how they will pass under the judgmental rod of the Messiah. Let me read it to you. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge you the rebels, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So Messiah will purge out all the rebels when the Jewish people across the planet, most of whom will be living in Israel, when they stand before Messiah, God will purge out the believing Jews from the unbelieving Jews. And only believing Jews will be able to enter the kingdom of God, because unless you've received Yeshua as Lord, unless you are born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so before Messiah can reign and set up his kingdom, since only believers can enter into that kingdom, as Paul will say in Romans 9, they are not all Israel who are Israel. That is, everyone who is physically descended from Abraham is not spiritually descended from him. That's what Jesus said in John 8, if you were truly sons of Abraham, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. You would show that you had had a new birth from above, that you were a different kind of person. And many of the Jews during the tribulation will die. Zechariah says two-thirds of all the Jewish people on the earth will die. There are many unbelieving Jews in the world today. You go to Tel Aviv, that's the homosexual capital of the world. You think San Francisco is gay. You haven't seen anything. There is a wickedness and a rebelliousness. Only about 35% of the Jewish people are Orthodox and really fear God there in the great country of Israel today. But that's going to change during the tribulation. Some will receive Jesus is Lord. And so by the time the second coming happens, those who are Israel, born again, will be separated out from unbelieving Israel. Isaiah 60 says, then all your people will be righteous. Those are the only ones who will enter the kingdom. That's the context of Isaiah 60. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. Now, there's the third judgment. He'll judge believers in heaven. He'll judge Jewish people on the earth, those who are alive at the second coming. He'll also judge the Gentile survivors, those Gentile nations of the world who have survived. And Jesus describes that in Matthew 25, verses 11 to 45. He'll gather all the Gentile believers of the world, and he'll separate, the Bible says, the sheep from the goats. And Christ is clear, again, that no unbelievers can enter the kingdom. Read Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. And in that chapter, he describes how he'll separate the tear from the wheat, the good fish from the bad fish. Zero unbelievers will enter the kingdom of God. Well, how will God show those who are legitimately His and those who are not by their fruits? It's the theme that runs through Scripture. You will know them by their fruits. You're not saved by your fruits, but if you are saved, you'll have evidence. And so if you remember, he extends an invitation to those on his right, that is his sheep, to enter the kingdom that he has prepared since the creation of the world. Let me read it to you. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. And the Lord will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? Now, the basis of their entrance into the kingdom is how they treated the king. And so the statement that the king, Jesus, makes prompts them, the sheep, to ask a question. Listen, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The king will say, the way you treated my brethren, brethren, brothers is used in three ways in Scripture, sometimes just generically like of an unbelieving Jew. Sometimes it's used of a born-again Christian, and sometimes it's used of a believing Jew. And Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of me, these my brethren. Remember, there's three groups of people in this great parable. There's the sheep, believing Gentiles. There's goats, unbelieving Gentiles. And then there's this third group, my brethren. Now, we take these verses all the time. We say, "Mm, I want to make sure I'm saved. I better have a prison ministry, or I better get involved in feeding hungry people. And those are all good things to do, but it has nothing to do with this passage. He is talking about how People, Gentiles, will identify with Jews during this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. The sheep will stand with Israel even if it costs them their lives. The goats will stand with the Antichrist, and the worst anti-Semitic behavior in the history of the world is going to unfold. Listen, uh, an anti-Semite today is giving evidence that they are treating God's brethren wrong, that they are an unbeliever. And so the goats will align with the world dictator, and they will be removed from the earth and cast into eternal punishment. Listen, then he will answer them, the goats. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So on these two judgment, the believing Jews are separated from the unbelieving Jews, the believing Gentiles are separated from the unbelieving Gentiles. And also, not only will they enter the kingdom, in addition, Old Testament saints who had died millennia before will be resurrected at this time. Listen to Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, Michael the archangel, you know him, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, the Jewish people have known horror, it seems, since their inception, whether it's the Assyrians who crushed them or the Babylonians or Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we studied in the book of Daniel, or whether it's the pogroms or the great Holocaust. Michael is saying there is coming a time of distress like Israel has never, ever, ever seen in all of their history. 
Jesus almost verbatim quotes this in Matthew 24, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever will. But Michael the archangel gives the Jewish people, Daniel's people, hope. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued despite the horrors of the tribulation where many Jews will have died for their faith, those who did not flee into the wilderness. Many also will awake from the dust of the ground these to everlasting life. So four groups of people entering the kingdom. Church saints, first Christ comes for his church, then we will come back with him and we will rule and reign on the earth with him for a thousand years. Second group are tribulation saints. We studied them. They are in heaven. They will get their resurrected bodies along with all the Old Testament saints at the second coming of Christ. And the fourth group is that of those who enter in their natural bodies, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. By the way, that no unbelievers will enter the kingdom. And this is really important. Sometimes we use the word left behind. You don't want to be left behind. Depends for what event. You don't want to be left behind for the rapture, but you do want to be left behind at the second coming. So listen to what Jesus said, for as in those days before the flood, he's talking about his second coming, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Now, Hal Lindsey went to the same seminary I did, and he came up with some view on this text that has nothing to do with anything. This is not the rapture of the church. He was not taught that there. Contextually, this is talking about the second coming. And so analogous to Noah's day, the individuals who are taken are the lost people who are carried away or taken away in judgment. And those who are left are Noah and his family who enter into a brand new world. The disciples in the parallel text ask a question. They say, where, Lord? That is, where are these people taken? To which he cryptically replies, where the dead body is, there the vultures will gather. That is, by this expression, he is affirming that unbelieving people will be taken away in judgment. Much as a dead body causes the vultures to gather on it, so unbelievers will be consigned to the judgment of God. Those left are believers who are privileged to enter into a brand new world and to reign and to rule with the Messiah. That brings me to the fourth stage of this judgment, which we will cover next time. But let me just mention it, and it's the final judgment of all time of all unbelievers. Only unbelievers are present in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. We call it the great white throne judgment. Now, I know I just stuck a theological fire hose down your mouth. This is not padlum. This is meat. And if we're ever going to grow up, there are so many Christians today who are just so twisted up in their theology. And they're caught up into the emotionalism of Beth Moore and this person and that person. And they're just, they don't know who's on first because they're untaught. Look, if this is new to you, I get it. You might want to go back and listen to this two or three times and let it sink in. But let me give you again the big picture. 
as God gives the schematic in Scripture. It's called the premillennial view. Right now we're in the church age. God is building the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost. There's coming a day when the final person who's going to believe in Jesus in this age will believe, and the Father will say, go get your bride. The church will be raptured. We will go up. The tribulation will begin for the next seven years. It's a terrible time, and at the end of that seven years, Jesus will come to the earth. He will bring His church with Him. We will be there with Old Testament saints who will be raised at this time, with tribulation saints who will be raised at this time, and we will also enter the kingdom with surviving Jew and Gentiles, and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now, that's the big overall schematic and sketch. Now, keep that in mind as we read here verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Remember, we're trying to ask and answer two critical questions. Number one, precisely, who is Satan deceiving? It won't be anyone who's been saved and redeemed. If you're in your resurrected body, will you be able to sin? Of course not. Remember the promise of Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Or 1 John 3, 2, that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So all who are in their resurrected body, tribulation saints who died during the tribulation who are resurrected, Old Testament saints who are resurrected, church saints who have been raptured and resurrected, they will not be able to sin. What about those who enter into their natural bodies? Yes, they will be able to sin. They'll be just like you and me. Sometimes we're consistent, sometimes we're not. You may be redeemed. You are certainly eternally secure if you've been born again, but you can still sin. The one who says he does not sin makes God a liar. We all stumble in many ways, James the apostle says. So they will certainly be able to sin, but will they be able to reject Jesus and be cast into the lake of fire? Of course not. They're eternally secure. So who's sinning? Who is responding in a sinful way where they listen to the devil and with Satan are cast into the lake of fire? The children of those who entered into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. Now remember, the curse will be lifted off of the creation. Men will live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years like they did before the day of the great flood. Isaiah 65 says, for as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Now, Audrey and I, it's just her and I, we started with two, but we look at our family tree now and it's like, man, it's really getting big. What if we were married for a thousand years? And our children and our grandchildren, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, I'll tell you, we would have a lot of kids. Remember, this is a time there's no famines on the earth. Messiah is ruling with a rod of iron. No one will be exterminated through a war. There'll be no natural disasters. No one will be attacked by a wild animal. 
the world will be repopulated. But just as each of my children and grandchildren must make a decision for Jesus, so the children of tribulation saints must make a decision. You're not a Christian because your mom and dad are. God has children. He has no grandchildren. You must personally decide whether or not you will receive Jesus as Lord. By the way, this kicks out the post-tribulational view. There are some people who think, well, Jesus is uh, going to come at the second coming. That will be the next event. Someday the tribulation will start, seven years. At the end of the tribulation, he will come. Well, what happens when he comes? Well, I guess we go up and we make a U-turn and we come down and then he rules and reigns for a thousand years. Well, if they're all in resurrected bodies, who's going to rebel with the devil at the end? So what do most people do? They just become an amillennialist. There's no such thing as a literal thousand-year reign. Oh, forget Israel. Forget the promises of a kingdom. They forsook them. No, they did not. They may have disobeyed, but God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham that had nothing to do with Israel's obedience. He is going to keep his promises no matter what. It forces a pre-tribulation belief because the only people who can have children who will rebel is if there are people who will enter the kingdom in natural bodies whose children do not decide. You with me? Now, that's the who. Why? Why would anyone want to follow the devil at the end of this thousand years? Let's keep reading verse 8. And he, the devil, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, meaning the four compass points, north, south, east, and west, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, John mentions here Gog and Magog. Now, think this through because these are two unique names, and sometimes people get them confused with a war that has not yet happened that is described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We studied it all the way back in Revelation 4. Do you remember this chart? Gog, of course, is a prince, a leader, and Magog represents the people. And so there's going to be people from around the Middle East, including Russia and current-day Turkey and Iran and Libya and Sudan and Central Asia. They're named in Scripture, and they're all going to attack Israel. And it appears that this happens early on, maybe even after the rapture, before the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel, or shortly after the rapture and the peace treaty is signed, because it takes seven years, the Bible says, to clean up the mess. But here, this phrase, Gog and Magog, and by the way, this happens in Israel. If you've not read those two chapters, it's an exciting read. I mean, all these nations are going to come against Israel, which will make no doubt the Antichrist a star as a man of peace, but God will supernaturally deliver them. I mean, bullets and bombs won't accomplish their purposes, and God will spare Israel. You cannot spare Israel. I'm going to Israel in a week or so, and people say, you're afraid to go to Israel? I'd rather be in Israel if there's a nuclear war on the planet than in the United States, because Israel cannot be exterminated. God promised to fulfill his purposes and plans through the people of Israel. Now, there are three big battles that happen in the final time frame of human history. There's the battle of Gog and Magog that is somewhere either right before the rapture or right after the rapture. 
That's found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's the battle of Armageddon. We study that in detail. And then there's this final battle at the end of the thousand years. But you see, he uses this phrase Gog and Magog because it becomes a phrase that really illustrates people who are in rebellion against God. We do the same thing today with the word Armageddon. And I hear the guy say, well, we've got this Armageddon-type hurricane that is coming upon us. You know, it's just a, a word that we use very loosely today to describe any kind of uh, disaster or uh, somehow use emblematically of a horrible time that is coming. Oh, that's how John is using it. In fact, you can almost read the verse, without Gog and Magog and change nothing. Without it, and he, the devil, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners to gather them for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, follow me. Here they are, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Not everyone will receive Christ. You say, why wouldn't they receive Jesus? I mean, he's here on the earth. He's ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. Why didn't they receive him the first time when he was here? And why won't people receive him today? For the same reason, the stubbornness in love for evil and for sin. But further in verse 9, and they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know the beloved city by now? It's Jerusalem. It's identified as such in the Revelation. And so why? Why are they going to listen to the devil? Because they will not submit to Jesus as Lord. And all those people who gave a feigned obedience to the Messiah during this thousand years, like the sand of the seashore, a vast multitude, when Satan is released and given freedom... They will listen to the deception. Why? Because they didn't believe the truth. Third and finally, there's Satan in his freedom. There's Satan in his forces. Then there's Satan in his finale. I'm almost done. Hang with me. What takes place is really not so much a battle as it is a divine execution. Look at it. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not one shot is fired, not one sword is unsheathed, and the sky bursts into flame, and all of the armies that come against God's Christ are exterminated in a moment. And now Satan's doom is finalized. Look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, which, by the way, mitigates against those who teach annihilationism. Seventh-day Adventists say hell is not forever. Um, uh, JWs, Jehovah Witness, teach that the unbeliever just dies and he's exterminated and turns to dust and no longer exists. No, we will see when we come to the next paragraph that unbelievers will live forever. The beast and the false prophet, two humans... They've been already in the lake of fire, the first occupants, for a thousand years, and they're still alive. And now Satan is added, and we'll see next time, all of the unbelievers of all time are added, and they will be there forever and ever and ever. Now, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? Let me suggest three applications as I close. Number one, there is a lesson here today about our fallenness. There's a lesson about our fallenness. Under the theocracy of Christ, with Satan bound in the abyss, Jesus will rule over the nations of the world. And yet, 
While many will obey because they have to obey, it's kind of like today. Some of you have children, and they obey because they have to obey. They're in their fence. But when the fence is opened, sometimes you see what they're really made of. You see whether or not their conversion is genuine. The fence will be opened at the end of the thousand years. And you will see who the real believers are, those people who met Jesus, who were born during the millennium, and those who were born who did not meet Jesus. And it will, in essence, display what God says about the depravity of man, that the heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. You see, today there are so many explanations, you know, all these mass shootings, it's mental illness. It's a whole lot more than that, my friends. The greatest problem is not what set of parents you went home with from the hospital. Man's greatest problem is not whether you're breastfed or bottle fed. Man's greatest problem is not whether or not your parents bribed you with candy. Your biggest problem is not the school you were attended, whether you're educated or uneducated. Man's biggest problem has always been the same, and it is a problem of depravity and of sin. Second, there's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. There's a lesson here about God's victory. Wickedness is going to receive its due judgment, and what we will study next time is chilling. When we look around and we see the difficulties in this world, and especially when you see what appears to be the wicked prospering and the righteous failing, like what is going on? It seems like there's no consequence for the unbeliever as he enjoys his sin and is an evangelist for sin. It's all going to change. We will see that we are on the winning side, and God will be glorified. Third and finally, there is a lesson here about man's need to believe. Again, the next and final paragraph in this chapter is so sobering that you'd think that if someone really absorbed it and understood its implications that they would want to immediately repent, but they don't. Not long ago, I had to fix something in my home, and I needed some strong glue. And I went out into the garage, and I found these two old tubes. I don't think they even make them anymore, where one tube is like a hardener, and you mix it with another one, and you stir it all up, and then you cement whatever it is you're trying to make. So what is the hardening agent against God? Very simple, it is sin. Jesus said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. Please understand, it's not that, well, God just softens some hearts and He lets some go to heaven and leaves the rest to go to hell. Or God chooses some to, to go to heaven and then He chooses others to go to hell. It's not like that at all. That is a distortion of the justice and the love and the truth of Scripture. People who go to hell go there because they've hardened their heart against the truth and they chose to do it all by themselves. The Bible warns that a day is coming when the Antichrist will step on the planet. The one who's coming, Paul says, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And please notice the reason 
why this happens to them. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If you're here today and you're not saved and you think, oh, if the rapture happens, I'll get my heart right. I'll finally believe what my friend and my parents and my preacher has been telling me. No, you won't. For this reason, God will send upon them. For what reason? Because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. It will be too late for these people during the tribulation. They won't be a part of the great multitude who's saved. Those are people who've never heard the gospel before in clarity and power. This group, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. In other words, God will harden their heart because of their rebellion in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I want you to know that the opposite of truth is not error. It is sin. When you meet a person who says, well, I'm not sure there's a God, or I don't believe the Bible, or I don't think there's a heaven or a hell, you are dealing with a person who has a moral issue in their heart. They are suppressing the truth about God in their hearts. And if they stay there long enough, the Bible teaches they will believe a lie, either in this life or after the rapture of the church. Listen, if I was not absolutely sure that Christ was my Savior, I would want to fix it today. And you can, because whosoever will may come. And if you will call upon Jesus in faith and believe what God says in this book about you, that your heart is wicked and you need a Savior. He will save you. He will receive you today. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Father, we bow in Your holy presence, thanking You for Your goodness, Your kindness to us. I pray today for someone here who's unsure of their destiny in their heart. They think, I'd like to go to heaven. I think I might, but I don't know and your word says, because they've never exercised genuine confidence in what you've promised. Because you did what you did, thank you that you can promise that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your death was not partial but total, that you dealt with all of our judgment. Help someone in simple, childlike faith, Father, to believe your word. Spirit of God, help them to say, Lord Jesus save me. Now, Father, many of us here have crossed that line, many listening on other campuses, some who are listening through the internet. And yet, though you've entrusted to us this truth and opened our eyes to it, our hearts are lukewarm, and we can't remember the last time we pled with anyone to come to Jesus. May we repent of our sin. May we walk in holiness for a day is coming when you will sum it up. And for that, we are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation this morning. And if you're here and maybe this week, maybe this morning, you said in faith, you believed what God said, Lord Jesus, save me you want to make it public, I want to invite you to leave your seat and come to this front row and your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed of him. Maybe you've not been baptized as we've seen several today do. And you know that that is an act of obedience that you are to symbolically express to show your faith. I want to give you that chance to come today and to say, yes, I want to do that.
You might be a Christian and you need a church home. We need you. And if you want to help us, you might be in Bluffton this morning. You might be in Graniteville. You might be in Grays. But there's a decision in your heart you know you need to make. I want to invite you this morning to make that. That's going to lead us. If you have a decision, I invite you to leave now and meet me here in the front.